podcast has bad words. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it It looks like we have several more surprise questions this week um, about to-do lists, about calendars, about digital productivity, about using social media for business, about curating photographs digitally. And I want to talk to Cal about uh, digital minimalism for parents. That, uh, that question came up. As well as uh, the 1,600-person digital detox experiment that Cal did in his new book. Let's so I want everyone to know, dude, the, again, you don't have any social media presence. Yeah. Yet you were able to find 1,600 people yeah. to help with this. Yeah. So uh, going back to being relevant, yeah, you can absolutely stay relevant without being on Facebook. All right, before we dive into the surprise questions, let's... Let's have let's read some more about less. So, Cal, each week we try to find a article here where we uh, we dissect a little bit of it, and it just it's really just a springboard for us to talk about some stuff that we're talking about today. The article I have here today is the New Yorker. It's from the New Yorker. It's called "The Machine Stops" by Oliver Sacks. My favorite aunt, Auntie Lynn, when she was in her 80s, told me that she had not, she had too much difficulty adjusting to all the things that were new in her lifetime. Jet planes, space travel, plastics, and so on. But that she could not accustom herself to the disappearance of the old. Where have all the horses gone? Mm. She would sometimes say. Born in 1892, she had grown up in a London full of carriages and horses. I have a similar feeling myself. A few years ago, I was walking with my niece Liz down Mill Lane, a road near the house in London where I grew up. I stopped at a railway bridge where I had loved leaning over the railings as a child. I watched various electric and diesel trains go by, and after a few minutes, Liz, growing impatient, asked, What are you waiting for? I said I was waiting for a steam train. Liz looked at me as if I were crazy. Uncle Oliver, she said, there haven't been steam trains for more than 40 years. I have not adjusted as well to my aunt. I have not adjusted as well as my aunt did to some aspects of the new. Perhaps because the rate of social change associated with technological advances has been so rapid and so profound. I cannot get used to seeing myriads of people in the street peering into little boxes or holding them in front of their faces, walking blithely in the path of moving traffic. I've, I see this all the time, especially in Los Angeles, yeah. where someone on their phone almost gets hit by a person on their phone who's in their car on Dude, their phone. At a red light, you are, you know, you have like a 75% chance of the lane not moving yeah. because someone is stuck on their phone not paying yeah. attention to the light turning green. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And we're seeing we're seeing just more and more and more of it. So I guess like how is there any advice, Cal, on how to I don't know, man, how how to adapt to living uh, living life without social media? Um, I don't know if that's a good question or not, but well, I mean, something I think is worth emphasizing. And this is something that became clear when I was doing the book research. I didn't really understand this as, as much until I really got into it, is that this model that Oliver is talking about mm -hmm. of let's always be looking at the screen. We incorrectly think that that's just fundamental to the technology, mm -hmm. right? That's what smartphones bring you. It's just this emergent behavior. It would be, it would be unusually radical not to do it. But if you look into it, uh, it's actually much more recent and much more contrived than we think, right? So the original model of the smartphone was a tool that did things you cared about really beautifully. Like this was Steve Jobs' vision. Mm -hmm. uh, he loved music. People loved to listen to music. It was going to be the best iPod he'd ever built. People make phone calls. That's important. It was going to be the best phone he'd ever built. And they're going to put it in the one beautiful object, right? right. It was a minimalist, you know? It was basically yeah. merging your phone with your iPod yeah. at and the I, time. And I talked to the, the developer lead for the original iPhone when I was researching the book, and he said 100%, right? Wow. I mean, Jobs was a minimalist. Take yeah. things that people love, make the experience even better. Mm -hmm. uh, original social media, much more static, right? Mm -hmm. It was basically, uh, it's a pain to set up your own blog, so we'll, we'll basically make it 
easier, right? You post about what you're doing, your friends post about what they're doing, you go on and see what they're up to. I mean, it, w- it was about connection, right? But it was very static. Maybe you would look at it a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did not use our phones all the time. This changed around the time that the major social media companies led by Facebook realized they had to get their revenue numbers way up because their investors wanted their return. Right. The IPO was coming up. Mm. And so they re-engineered the entire social media experience to uh, foster sort of compulsive checking. Mm. And this is when they shifted it away from you post and I post and made it more about social approval indicators. Mm. So now every time you tap the app, you can see how many likes you got or how many favorites or whether people tagged you in the photos. This was not in the original social media uh, technology. It wasn't something that people were clamoring for. So they built in addiction in a way. They built in addiction and and in an intentional way, right? And this is what actually transformed our relationship from our phones from it being a tool where it's, hey, I need to look up directions. And I was like, this is great, <laughs> this is beautiful. Like I can stretch and pull it, I can see the directions It got me where I need to go, then I put it away. It transformed it from that into, I'm at the red light in LA, and even then I have to keep checking it. Yeah, so yeah. the constant companion model, right? That's not fundamental to this tech. That was essentially invented as part of the business model of a small number of very large companies. It's not at all fundamental. Um, It's basically what allowed, let's say, Facebook to jump to these massive valuations. Mm. But in order to get those valuations, they had to figure out how to get people to look at these things all the time. And so they engineered it for it. So, So what I try to push back on people is the weird thing is this. This is just you being a gadget in some sort of business model. You can go back and use these phones in the jobsy envision of beautiful devices that do useful things really, really well. It doesn't have to be something you're looking at all the time, and it doesn't have to be something that's even with you all the time. Yeah. Well, and that's I love that. The, the, the GPS is another example of something that, for me, has become overused in a way. Uh, when my mother was, was dying, and she was in St. Petersburg, Florida, it was before the GPS was ubiquitous on phones, and it still didn't work very well. This was 2008. And so you'd have to print stuff out from MapQuest still. But... I learned the city and I love St. Petersburg, Florida as a result. We have a coffee, we own a coffee shop down there. And, and the reason that we fell in love with the community, I think part of it had to do with just learning the city, like being forced to sort of get lost and, and one way to connect with a, with a place and to connect with people Mm -hmm. is to get lost together in a way. Um, so we do this thing called screenless Saturdays now where we, we basically, uh, there's three ways you could you can do it. You can do no social media on Saturdays, just to temporarily detox for a day. Um, it's it's sort of dipping your toe in the water. Um, the the second way is n- no computer screens as well, so you can't work that day. And the third is just no screens at all. Um, so that's like the extreme version. No no screen at all. I'm not going to have my phone. I'm not going to have my uh, TV. I'm not going to have my computer. And we find we have a lot of people who have been doing this along with us, but on screenless Saturdays, the, the times when I, when Bex and I, we completely turn off all screens, we just sort of drive around and get lost together. Yeah. And you learn the city in a way that you're not, you're not relying on the technology, but then sometimes when you bring it back in, you realize like maybe you don't need it as much as you, you thought you did. You don't need that crutch anymore. The first screenless Saturday I did, com- like completely screenless, uh, Mariah and I were going on a hike north of Los Angeles and uh, we had printed out directions there and I was like, I could probably work my way back. I don't have to print out, you know, there and back. But it's amazing how, uh, I forgot how actually easy it is for your brain to pick up on directions. Like... Yeah. It's, it's something that, um, it's almost doing ourselves a disservice when we rely on our smartphone to do every single thing for us. What I really like about this conversation too, is like, we're not stoics. We're not saying like, get rid of your smartphone, delete everything. You know, like this is about being intentional with the the technology that we have. I'm going to get back to this article here. Um, I'm most alarmed by such distraction and intention when I see young parents staring at their cell phones and ignoring their own babies as they walk or wheel them along. I gotta have to pause again. Dude, I was, how many? Oh, go ahead. No, I was driving through. I think it was Chevy Hills. Uh, it's out by Century City here, and I was just driving. It's like, and you know, my Google Maps was taking me through a side street because it was you know, uh, redirecting traffic basically. And I saw this person on this parent with their stroller on their phone, and I. This is not made up. I'm driving down the street. The stroller starts rolling backward, turns the spins around, tips forward into the street. The baby goes face first into the street. Oh my God. And a car is heading toward it. Wow. 
it was like a scene from a movie. In fact, yeah. you write that into a movie. It's you're like, like Untouchables, where the, the yeah the, the carriage goes down the Going, steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it it seems like I was looking at this like this is not even plausible in in a wow. movie like this. This is. But it happened right there in front of me yeah. because this person was both checking their mailbox and their phone at the same time. It's like a metaphor. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, of multitasking. I, yeah. I have seen uh, I've seen memes of like women who have just given birth and they got their baby in one hand and they got their smartphone in the other. And it's like that is where our priorities lie right now. It's I just had a baby. So it's, I, I, I do want to give this baby attention, but I also want to take advantage of this moment to broadcast it and to talk to all my friends about this moment when, yes, we should just be focusing on our child. Yeah. But we've had ways to pacify ourselves for uh, decades, hundreds of years even. This is a different kind. This is this is pacification on, on steroids in a way, right? Because before it was, it was yeah. everyone, everyone had similar concerns, whether or not they're as, as valid. With, they had similar concerns with, the, with television, right? But, but those were valid concerns. I mean, yeah. Well, actually, the they question turned is, out to be correct. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, the question it, is, are they as valid, right? Yeah. And and uh, so maybe it's just it's there's these degrees. The Stoics had concerns about books. They were like, yeah. throw away your books, right? Because it's it's pacification. You're not actually living in the world. Yeah. yeah. And, and so in a way, like this is a it it's an old problem, but at the same time, it's a new problem, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so this comes up a lot, right? People, this is one, this is one of the uh, the gotcha questions I get a lot is, well, everyone was worried about every technology. And then the way this storyline often goes is, and then in the end with all these other technologies, we ended up realizing that it was okay. Mm-hmm. And isn't this just the same thing? But, th- but there's really two things going on there. One, we weren't this worried about most technologies, mm-hmm. right? So so people definitely go back. I've seen this in technocriticism. And they'll find a little bit, one quote, they'll find Thoreau talking about what if we connect Maine and Texas with a telegraph and they have nothing to say and say, see, people were really worried about the telegraph. Yeah. But people weren't really worried about the telegraph, <laughs> right? I mean, for the most part, it, it didn't really change most people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, there's this period in the early 2000s thousands when almost every techno optimist book uh, went back to the same dialogue of plato the the phaedrius dialogue and said look here's socrates in this in this dialogue basically saying the written word is bad see so we even worried that like the written word is bad except for it's not really what he was saying right, right? i mean what he was saying is like the dialectical method where we go back and forth mm-hmm. is a really important way to figure out truth if you just read things you don't have the actual interaction you're not going to get at all the truths yeah. we still actually agree with that that's why we use the socratic method in a lot of law schools right it wasn't like there was a general move against paper um, so a lot of that is overblown tv though is interesting because mm-hmm. people got really worried about tv and they're more or less correct. Yeah. Like it completely changed the the social fabric. We grew up with it, but this idea that it just became standard that you come home from work and you watch five hours of TV, yeah. like that was incredibly disruptive. And then, so what's happening now with the sort of algorithmically optimized entertainment with our phones? Um, yes, I think it's also just as bad, if not worse, because now we have ubiquity. Right, yeah. and I, but I think with the with the TV, I think we're going to see this shift where. It is effectively phased out. You, uh, I, I, we had Andrew Schultz on on the show, and I heard him talk about this. How your TV is just a really terrible giant phone. It doesn't do anything that your phone uh, does really. <laughs> Even if you have a smart TV, it's the worst smartphone right. in the world. Yeah. And what we're going to see are iterations of TV, which are basically just bigger screens that are connected to your device, so we can multitask dude I, i'm guilty of it man like, so am i i will be I'll, I'll sit there watching reruns of the office on netflix yeah, well yeah yeah and then i'll be like oh while i'm on here i might as well check my you know i got my phone right here i might as well check email might as well and that's that's where screen the saturdays have really kind of helped me overcome that but yeah i think we're all guilty of it i love the four-year <clears throat> thing that you you talked about recently can you uh can you can you shed a light on that the four-year thing. yeah uh leaving your phone in the four-year oh, the four-year yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I I you said four, four years <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was like, what did i do four years ago <laughs> yeah so so uh, i had an article about parenting and digital minimalism um it's not from my own insights i mean i have a whole mess of kids but they're young uh-huh. so like how this, many kids do you have three okay but the oldest is six uh-huh. so so we're not quite thinking about this but i'm, I'm meeting a lot of parents when i'm on the road uh-huh. and they're really worried about it. parents have older kids yeah. right they're worried about it and one of the lessons... So Sean has two teenagers, for example. He has right, a 17-year-old, so 15-year-old. So Sean knows. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's in the thick of this, right? Yeah. Um, 
so one of the interesting ideas that was coming back is what parents are discovering is that modeling is really important, mm. right? I mean, it's very yeah. hard to just, you know, lay down the, this is bad for you. Stop using this. Yeah. I don't want you on social media so Kids much. Hold do on. What we do, <laughs> yeah. Not what we say. Yeah, but hold on one second. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing whatever. I'm checking whatever. And so this, this phone foyer method, basically the idea is, okay, when you're at home in the evening with your family, mm-hmm. you leave the phone by the front door. Yeah. Right. You know, it's where you, where you put your wallet and your keys. And so if you need something, you go and you look it up. Mm-hmm. And if you're expecting some text, met, you can go check, but you're doing it there, not around other people, right? So yeah. I did I did this for a long time, and for whatever reason, when I moved, I stopped doing it. But mm-hmm. so when I did the experiments of, I started like just I got rid of my TV when my marriage ended ten years ago, and then I moved into an apartment, just didn't get a new TV, right? And then I, when I moved again because I was downsizing, I didn't hook up internet for. Oh, I'll try this out for a month. It was so productive, but of course I had this this cheat in my pocket. Like I got internet right here. It was a BlackBerry at the time, so it wasn't a great cheat, <laughs> but it was a cheat nonetheless. And, but then I started. I moved where the charger was, and and I always kept that phone on the charger while I was at home. So if I needed to go text, I had it there, and you learn about a special kind of loneliness because I, you realize how much you pacified yourself with yeah. no TV, no home internet, no phone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up getting rid of the phone for two months. And I, I realized like, oh, well, I'm twitching for all these, these yeah. things. I'm, mm-hmm. I want the junk food. I want the sugar. I had the, and I was like going through a sort of uh, this, this toxic detox. Yeah. yeah. Well, when we look at these pacifiers, I think there are statistics ca- that can tell us like, the way this technology is affecting our society. So I look at things like uh, millennials are having, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a significant uh, amount less that millennials are having sex. Mm-hmm. And it's because it, it has a lot to do with this age we live in with, you know, whether it's pornography or whether it's like checking your phone all the time, but we are distracting ourselves to the point where we want to have sex less. Well, I, didn't you? You probably know the stats on this, but there's some absurd percentage that is greater than zero of people using their smartphone while having sex. Yeah, it's like a large percentage. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I mean, other than for filming, I can't imagine what you would use the the, the smartphone for. <laughs> <laughs> Live tweeting. <laughs> Forget this on Periscope. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> well, there, there's a point you make in your book too about how um, I think it was a teacher that was saying. Um, how different the students are now because of of smartphones and how, I mean, we really could be heading towards this this crisis of mental health because of what smartphones are doing. And and it's not like us three old guys sitting here being like, ah, smartphones are going to destroy mental health. I mean, there's (laughs) kids these days. It's uh, it's it. There's like numbers to back this up with the commissioner of the NBA was talking about this recently. Did you see that? What's his name? Adam silver. Yeah. I I didn't see him talking about, but I bet I know what study he's talking about. Well, he, yeah, he was, he was referring to, well, just the mental health of the players in the league because they're, I mean, you got to think about it. They, they're, young super young they're 18 to 25 a lot of them and they have access all of a sudden they have millions of followers yeah and And their agents are on them yeah Yeah. their agents what i've been hearing their agents are on them your brand matters Uh uh-huh yeah you gotta have you gotta be on there yeah yeah Yeah. the coaches hate it of course yeah Yeah. and 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 there are some, it's weird because you can also use it as a tool. I, the the best example for me of of a famous person using it as a as a tool to connect with people mm-hmm. is Will Smith and what he's done recently. I don't know, have you seen anything that he so he the, the I think the age of the the sort of universal um, superstar who is completely removed from the people is is gone and the new universal superstar is constantly connected. You mentioned the Kardashians earlier. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump is a is a phenomena of of uh, of this weird connectivity, right? Connecting direct directly to the people. But Will Smith, w- what he did is he's like, oh, okay, I've made four or five movies that haven't that haven't gone great. And I need a way to connect with people. I loved Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was is that peak. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think what um, what we what what he realized is like, oh, you take someone who has real talent and a budget, I can do something that's truly entertaining on yeah. social media. Yeah. But it's not it's not the snacking. It's like he's doing sixty second feature films in a way. Yeah. Um, you have a, a real like professional who's doing that. Most of us are so amateurs the that 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 we've 
Well, it's in the subtitle of your book. It's a noisy world for a reason because we're yeah. all talking now. We do all not all of us have a lot to say. Yeah, we're not all Will Smith, <laughs> right? In terms of everyone, yeah. But that's the what the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was like what's it convincing the world doesn't exist is like yeah. here the greatest trick the digital devil has ever pulled is tricking one everyone into thinking that they're really important to a lot yeah. of people right well, it's, it's not so that people true. aren't important but the idea that you're important to this imperial this audience mm-hmm. that there's this audience that's out there that really cares where the people that you really want to be important for it's the friend who's right here it's your kids it's your parents it's yeah. like the local community right and yeah. but it's tricked us into believing and one of the worries people have about stepping away from social media, like doing any of these sort of declutters, is, well, my fans are going to miss me. Oh. No, they're, yeah. they're are not, they really going to miss you? they're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they don't care. And if they're true fans, they'll be there when you get back. But And, and these aren't media personalities. I mean, it's right. just people, but it's just the way, it's the way we've been conditioned to think. Yeah. I think the other thing that tricks us too sometimes is we look at these tools and we ask that question, you know, does this add value to our lives or does it support our values yeah. and we trick ourselves in saying yes uh this this device or this platform or whatever it is it does add value but with all of these different platforms we have there is a mixed bag of value and then there's also uh this harm yeah. that it causes mm-hmm. so when whenever we're looking at these platforms like the way will smith is using instagram i don't i haven't really went through it but it sounds to me like he is using it to add value and that but that's where you've got to be honest with yourself and, and ask like is this doing more harm than yeah. it is value because when it does as, add a little bit of value just like hitting the like button or hitting the haha button yeah it's like we feel like we're adding a little bit of value because it is supporting a value of yes i want to support a friend i want to show my friend that you know that i'm there for them but it's kind of doing more harm than good yeah well i mean this is something you notice with digital minimalist is that they, they always go beyond the binary question mm-hmm. like do i use this or not and they ask the follow-up question how and when yeah and that makes what 90 percent of the difference there yeah, so like a lot of visual artists for example have told me that Instagram is key. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the whole game in visual art is that you have to be exposed to what other people are doing. You can't be creative without actually having lots of inputs. Mm-hmm. That's why you used to have to live in one of three cities because you had to be near the galleries. If you couldn't see what other people were doing, you couldn't oh, do new art. Yeah. So so Instagram has blown this open. It's, it's been great for the art world. It means mm-hmm. I can, because people post what they're working on. Yeah. Right? But the digital minimalists I know that are visual artists, and, and they go through the whole sort of exercise of, you know, what do I value? What am I using? How am I using it? What a lot of them do is like, okay, well, I don't need to let that be an excuse to just be doing this all the time. Right. So they take it off the phone. They completely curate like you did. They go down to like, here's 10 artists I'm going to follow, and that's it. They do it on their desktop computer. They do it like once a week. It's mm-hmm. like 15 minutes they can see what's been posted. Yeah. And now they're getting, whatever, 99% of the value out of the tool. Yeah. And, 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 and avoiding like all the cost. 10% of the yeah. time. Yeah. Or less. Yeah. The, I think of uh, my former partner, Colleen. She has been doing, she's, she's a visual artist. She does uh, these like amazing very surreal Lynchian sort of collages and what she and she's been doing one every day since 2012 and has not missed a day since 2012 you know rain or shine sick or, or or in health she she has has done these collages and in a weird way it's like having an accountability partner there and and she has found a way to gamify it without them gamifying her yeah and and that is the other problem, you know, with Snapchat and the kids who are giving their passwords to their friends to log in for them to keep up the streak. The streaks. Yeah, yeah, the streaks. The, the, and so there can be a good like the Colleen thing with the streak. Mm-hmm. It's keep, she's keeping up her own streak. She's holding herself accountable through mm-hmm. publishing the same way you would if you're uh, Seth Godin and you're blogging every day, yeah. right? Uh, it's actually very similar to that. Her platform is just. Um, is Instagram with Matt Diavella, the director of our documentary. Um, he posts a, uh, like a short documentary once a week on YouTube, mm-hmm. and uh, he must put forty or fifty hours into each one. It's seven minutes long, mm-hmm. and he does that every week. But it's a way for him to, to stay accountable. Yeah. It's a way for him to broadcast because people are getting value from it. Yeah. We, it's it's this weird thing that that I'm I I it's a double bind because. The thing I, I tell writing students quite often is you are simultaneously more interesting and less interesting than you think. Yeah. Yeah. The things that are interesting to you uh, probably aren't that interesting to other people, 
but there is something about you, something you've learned, some pains you've gone through that you've learned from that maybe someone else can get value from. And and I think, Cal, you've done a good job of, and so maybe we transition past this article here because it's a long article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, you did a good job in, in your book just sort of uh, distilling down different people's experiences. So it wasn't just like, well, one Georgetown professor says you need to get off social media. Yeah. It was like, hey, let's... Um, Let's try this little experiment. So before we get into the experiment that you did, I'm just going to read this this bit from the end of the article here that I have uh, underlined. Um, he's talking about younger people, for the most part, who have grown up in our social media area have no personal memory of how things were before mm-hmm. and no immunity to the seductions of digital life. And that word seduc- seduction really stands yeah. out to me because seduction, the definition there is one of the definitions is to offer more than you can deliver. Mm. That, that is how you seduce someone. It's, it's over-promising, and then ultimately it can't deliver. The, when we see the, the beautiful curation of, of a lifestyle on Instagram, it's like, yeah, you can't have that. You can't have the Instagram life and simultaneously be uh, fulfilled, I, yeah. I think. Well, it uh, goes back to the gamifying social media. I mean, it, it's funny because until you talked about that little section about how social media is kind of like gambling. I think you even brought it up in your book or maybe I thought about it, but like Twitter to even like refresh, you have to pull down. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's almost like a slot machine. You got to pull down. It's intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And then it goes down and then you see the little circle and you're like, Oh, what other notifications am I going to get? And then it goes back up. Oh, I got notifications. Like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Well, the end of this, he says what we are seeing and bringing on ourselves resembles a neurological catastrophe on a gigantic scale. And I think that's the part that is most different now, the sort of, the, the, those two words, neurological catastrophe, Mm. because yes, TV did change the landscape to a great extent, at least for a period of time. But in a weird way, we're back into the golden age of radio now. We're we're on a radio show right now, right? It just happens to be delivered slightly differently. Instead of over your FM radio, it is delivered through, you know, other radio waves, you know, through Wi-Fi, and and but the thing that's different now is, man, the we are we're rats in the wheel, and it is a neurological catastrophe. It's it's Pavlovian in a way. It yeah. is weird too, because like the the digital world, you know, hearing that it's a, a neurological catastrophe makes me think that we're overworking our brains. Yeah, but it's actually doing the opposite. Is that? Would well, you agree with that, or? Well, there's all sorts of neurological issues, yeah. right? So, so, so one thing that's causing a lot of trouble is this notion that for the first time in human history, you can banish all solitude from your life, mm. right? I mean, yeah. and by solitude, I just mean time when you're not processing input from another mind. Yeah, it used to be completely unavoidable because you would be in line, you'd be whatever, you'd be waiting for the bathroom, you would be just walking out to your car, like you just throughout your day had a lot of time Mm -hmm. when it was just you alone with your own thoughts, which is a very different neurological mode than I am processing input from another person. Mm -hmm. That's like all hands on deck in our brain, right? Like if I'm, okay, I'm listing the Ryan, like it's all hands on deck, like I'm watching, I'm thinking, it's this is something we really care about social interaction. Having ubiquitous high-speed wireless internet and smartphones meant for the first time in human history, you can take every single moment of potential solitude and get rid of it, right? Have something to look at, something to process. This is causing trouble. It's causing, among other things, anxiety because mm. the brain, you know, it's not used to this. It's getting none of the background maintenance cycles. It's also really reducing our ability to have insights about ourselves or insights about our work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of value that comes out of just being alone with your own thoughts. And we've blithely just banished this. Yeah. Now, now it seems to me that reading, it does both in a way. You, If you sit down, you can have time in solitude. If you're reading, then you are digesting someone else's thoughts. So that's yeah. not solitude. But then... Yeah. You can pause whenever you want, and and in fact, often I, when I'm reading, I frequently pause and and consider the the, the thing. Um, so I, I don't know how, where does that fall in your definition of solitude. Well, I mean, reading's not a state of solitude, but we but we never had an issue before where people were reading all the time, right? Every time they were in line and when they were driving right. in between car, while <laughs> getting you know, a book out at a red light, getting <laughs> a book out on the red light. I mean, my grandfather used to do that famously, but uh, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> it was it wasn't good. No, uh, we, and we we see those examples of that. I remember there, there's a, a part in, in our book, everything that remains, and it's an actual scene that happened. I was driving on I-71 to Cincinnati, and it's bumper to bumper traffic, some of the worst traffic in the country. Cincinnati and 
as I'm going south, I'm stopped. We're going zero miles an hour. I look to my right, and the person in the driver's seat has a newspaper over the wheel <laughs> <I love it. laughs> and, and a bowl of cereal in their oh, hand, man. like the worst kind of multitasking here. Yeah. And just milk is dripping down their chin and, as they're reading the paper. And and we looked at that like, oh, that's that's not right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now we look at it and say, oh, yeah, I do that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's, We've normalized it. So that's a problem, right? Lack of solitude. The other problem is taking this sort of social processing hardware that, again, is incredibly specialized. It's the, the story of our species' success is that we have these social supercomputers yeah. that can do this. Yeah. Like I can, I can talk with you guys. I can look at your facial expressions. I can practice limbic consonants or I try to match the pacing. I'm doing something called mentalizing right now where I'm building a model of your mind in my mind so that mm. I can test against this model, how you would react to different things. I mean, right. It's a social supercomputer, yeah. but it's evolved for, uh, I'm with people, mm-hmm. you know, people I've known for a long time. We're in person, we're interacting. Mm-hmm. This just messes with it. Yeah. It doesn't know how to deal with like a comment, you know, like a bad tweet or something like that, right? Because I mean, we treat it as if the person's right across Because our us. brain doesn't know the difference, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh my God, like someone in my tribe is really mad at me. Like I'm going to get a spear in the back, like red alert, right? right. But yeah. it's some rando on, on Twitter or the likes coming in that I get more likes or not likes. Our, our brain is seeing this as like we're around the campfire mm. and I can see that, you know, the the tribe mates are unhappy with me. Like this is, this is a serious issue, right? Mm. I, I need to manage the social dynamic. So this brain does not know at all how to deal with this sort of artificial sociality that was sort of, again, schemed up in a dorm room at Harvard, you know, 15 years ago, right? It's not some grand experiment. So that's also, and then the final thing is we're losing the ability to concentrate. Mm. And this is one of the issues. I mean, I've uh, totally uh, seen that. Attention spans are, And this has economic consequences. I mean, it has huge consequences to quality of life for sure. Mm -hmm. If you can't just be present in a moment, you can't concentrate on something that you're seeing. If you can't concentrate in conversation, it's having economic consequences. I mean, non-industrial productivity metrics have been stagnant throughout this last 10 years of all this technological innovation. We have a whole generation of people entering the workforce that are incredibly uncomfortable Mm. with sustaining attention at the same time that our economy is shifting more and more towards the thing we do is have brains concentrate and produce value. We're we're going towards this high level knowledge economy where this is like the most important resource we have. This is our oil fields, right? And we're getting worse and worse at using it. So I, he's right. I mean, Sachs is right about this, is mm-hmm. that what's happening to our brain is is really non-trivial. And you're right, TV did this too, but you only, what, you watch TV in the evening. Well, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't pacify yourself all day with yeah. it because it was not available. And nothing good was on on the weekends. So you still had to go to the Rotary Club and to your woodshed and, and go on hikes with your kids and stuff like that, right? That's I mean, it was, it was only there, you know, Thursday night primetime was pretty good. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> and, and the weird thing is, like, I, I noticed with my daughter, and you, you, you probably noticed with, with your kids, um, if they watch something, if you give them access to a video, like, they they just want more and more and more of it mm. but we're not so different um you know maybe we have a, a more fully developed frontal cortex but ultimately like i want that same uh it's what david foster wallace called um uh, uh food pellets from the universe mm. yeah. uh, and and like i kind of just want those food pellets give me give it's that very uh they're not very nourishing but it's at least it's something that i can that i can chew on yeah yeah, so um, let's talk about this this uh, experiment you did that sort of uh, was the, I guess, the precipice of the book. Was, was 1,600 people, is yeah. that right? Yeah, so, so, so I have this, this method, which is a little bit more self-helpy than I normally get in my writing. But like, <laughs> it, it turned out this was kind of unavoidable, right? So I have this, this 30-day idea, I call it the declutter, um, where, yeah, you take 30 days, you step away from all the optional tech. Uh, it's not just about a detox. So it's about giving yourself the space to actually figure out what am I actually all about? Mm-hmm. What are my values? What do I want to spend my time on? I mean, most people don't have an answer to this, right? Because they've been pacifying. They've mm-hmm. been pacifying the boredom. So you experiment and you figure out, okay, this is what I'm about. This is what I want to spend my time doing. And then when the 30 days are over, now you can do the whole minimalist game. Mm-hmm. Oh, is this tech really very valuable? Is it really going to boost one of these things I really care about? If no, then I can ignore it and be comfortable with it. And yeah. if so, all right, maybe I'll bring it back, but I'll, I'll put some rules around it. So I wanted to test this idea. And so I, I put a call out to my readers. Does anyone want to try this? I'm just curious. And, and I thought it was going to be like two dozen people. I mean, I, I literally thought like, oh, I'll go hang out with these people. Uh-huh. Like I can see how it's going. <laughs> I can profile them in the book or whatever. Yeah. And that's where 1600 people signed up, yeah, which awesome. showed that there was a, was a hunger for this. But hearing their reports, I learned a lot about why you need something like this 30 days, but also why it works and why it sometimes doesn't work. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really interesting nuance 
involved uh, in the shift. And you know, one of the biggest things I learned is that if you treat something like this, like a detox only, it's not going to stick. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, if you just say like, yeah, I just want to take a break mm-hmm. and then, then, uh, then everything will be better. Uh, it doesn't work. It's hard to even make it through the 30 days. Yeah. yeah. The people who succeeded were the people who put in the effort during those 30 days to actually figure out sort of like, what the hell am I about? Right. You know, to, an- to ask those questions that they've been putting off because you can pacify. Mm-hmm. Now, without the ability to pacify, they're feeling that boredom. They're feeling lonely. They're wondering like, okay, what, what should I do? And those who actually thought like, okay, what does matter? Let me experiment. Let me sign up for some things. Let me invite some people over. Let me go to the library. Like, let's try to figure out high quality activities for my time. The type of stuff boredom used to drive us to do. The people who did that when the 30 days were over, no trouble being minimalist. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's not that they all left social media. Mm-hmm. Probably about half came back to some social media, though almost none of them had it on their phone. Yeah. And about half left. But it was. it's not about good tech and bad tech. Mm. It's about before they were just, hey, if anything is valuable or, or potentially convenient, let me just try it. And after, they sort of knew what they were doing. Yeah. And then these things just became tools they got some big wins out of but wasn't dominating their time there are great examples in your book of people who like they went back to facebook but it's very honed in it's very dialed in like you know laser focused on why they use facebook yeah yeah it's yeah it's a great experiment what about what about parents digital minimalism for for we, we we touched on that a little bit but as as our kids get older and it it becomes they become these sort of social outcasts if they're not if they're they're not on it yeah and and so we're in this weird weird situation where it feels like we're depriving them although the thing that we give them will also deprive them of something that's even more meaningful well you know there's there's change uh there's change out there coming right one of the things i've been i've been hearing on the road is that the teenagers themselves are getting tired of this Mm. Like they don't, they don't like the Snapchat streak thing, right? Mm. I mean, it feels like work, right? The fact that they have to, they, it's like their job. They have to be up in their room managing all of these sort of social games so that what? So they can keep the, the revenue numbers high right. <laughs> right? that these giant corporations. Yeah. yeah. This, that's the funny thing. It's not even the revenue numbers for them. Yeah. Right? And so like, I understand the, the question earlier about how my business being relevant yeah. on social media. Although I, I think social media is, 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 is ancillary at best unless you are a, a particular unless there's a particular need for it social media is to me it augments every all all the creations that we do and that's how ryan and i use social media now we hired a person who takes our words so it's every, everything that we write and curates it in a way that a a museum curator would yeah. and makes it beautiful because she's actually she uh, was a curator for several art galleries and so what jess does is she she takes the stuff that we would want on social media and she finds the most beautiful way to get it out there so we can add value using those vehicles but not needing to constantly check mm-hmm. although i worry about this cal so tell tell me Tell me if uh, if I'm doing something wrong here. Um, I worry that we're adding to the noise, and and it's something I continue to worry about. Even though we do, we try to do a very good job of only doing things that will add value. It's none of the look at me. It's none of the uh, envy my life stuff. It's like, hey, here's something I think will be helpful. Yeah. But by putting it on Facebook, am I just am I perpetuating the problem, or am I combating it using? Facebook as a tool. So I'm curious. I mean, let me ask you, and this is actually an honest question because I don't know the dynamics. I don't know the dynamics of these businesses. Yeah. Like as a thought experiment, like let's say that um, you guys left all social. Yeah. Right. I mean, still YouTube, For right? A period of time. No, let's just say that was the decision, right? <laughs> In I mean, perpetuity. Yeah. You have your podcast and, yeah. and, and you, the video is still on YouTube. That's fine because uh-huh. where else are you going to host video? But let's just say. Then, uh, we can host it elsewhere maybe. Or elsewhere. But I mean, yeah. the point is like the video platforms, is, it's a slightly different thing, right? Yeah. Um, I, I do agree. Yeah. yeah because it, it, what it's offering it's is. It's not vapid. Like, it's like, it's much more meteor, much. Yeah. Vapid. Yeah. It, it, and it's, it's, I mean, there, there's other video platforms, but, but, um, but there's kind of a technological service there. But so. Let's walk through the thought experiment. Mm-hmm. So, what would happen? Like, I mean, what if like all the official Twitter and Facebook accounts said we kind of recommend that you 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 get off this? <laughs> well, dude, I'll tell you a story. I uh, woke up one day and I was like, I'm gonna just get off of Twitter right now. Yeah. Like, I'm I don't want to be on here anymore. So I delete Twitter. Nice. And it was about three hours later. I get a text from Josh. He's like, Did you delete your Twitter? Or did you block me on Twitter or something? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah, I deleted Twitter. And he's like, Dude. He's like, We just. He goes, That's not a problem. He said, Except we just sent all of the numbers to our agent who was working out a publishing deal for our book. Yeah. And part of my social media following 
is included in those numbers. Yeah, do they care more about email lists now? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And, and 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 we have we have that too, and which comes from blogs, which is actually a technology I'm a huge booster of. Mm. Yeah, yeah. S- same. I mean, it's the best decision that we ever made was to start our blog eight plus years ago. Yeah. And and for me, my favorite social media share button is the forward email button from people, right? Yeah. Because you're much more likely to to actually read the email if I send it to you than if if I were to you know, post something on Facebook and you're like, what is this? I'm really interested. Yeah. But it but it would so it probably would be a problem. I mean I'm actually curious about it, I right? Think, yeah, because, I am too. I, I don't know the answer. Because you have to be uh, if you're in like a media if you have a media brand mm-hmm. like you guys do it used you know you have to be what in the public eye in some top sense, of right? mind you have yes. to be top of mind and it used to be i guess you would do you'd want to get in magazines or or be what guest on shows i mean i don't sure. know what people used to do but you know it, you had to do a lot of effort well, i mean it's just replicating that for you or what would happen I, th- I think for us we are we're vehicle agnostic meaning we don't care what we use to get our story to get our message out there like what we do we feel uh, is is important in the sense that it adds a tremendous amount of value to a lot of people. So yeah, I, I don't, Josh, you're going to be able to speak to this better than I. Than well, I, I am. agree with the vehicle agnostic thing in in terms of uh, we want to use the best platform to share a particular yeah. message. So if we deleted Facebook, Instagram, Twitter right now, yeah. Joshua Fields, Melbourne, Ryan Nicodemus, and the Minimalist, all those deleted, yeah. what? What, what kind of impact do you think that would have on us? Well, Jess wouldn't have a job, right? Uh, <laughs> you can find something else for her to do, but but yeah, uh, yeah okay. Yeah. So would, so would, listen, would listen numbers go down? Uh, what, what, I mean, like, is this the drive? This is probably the main driver. You would say your podcast uh, uh, at the, the moment, or the it movie. Depends, or? It depends. The documentary did really well. Yeah. Uh, the website, our so our, our email list. You know, there there yeah. uh, there's a lot of people on that. Um, it's but email's becoming strangely less relevant too because everyone has Gmail and they've they've relegated yeah. the emails to the promotions tab. I'm sure you've gone through this with your own blog. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, and and what it means is people and if they don't if they have it set up and they don't have it set up a particular way, they're less likely to actually read your email. Just like. Twitter, you know, it, yeah. it, because email is an equally noisy place, and you and I have had conversations about the the craziness of that. Um, where would we be if we got rid of all of our social media accounts? Um, I, we'd be fine. Would we be able to add, have the same impact, add the same amount of value without them? No, I don't. I don't think so. Well, we kind of did this as an experiment last year, right? Yeah. So January of 2018, we hopped off social media for a month, with the intention of coming back as as a, a reset. Uh, saying how can we best use these platforms going forward because before then it, it got uh, we felt like ah oh, that we're being like self-promotion and that's not what we want to be i don't want to be the promo guy on social right. media it's okay to say hey i wrote a book and i'd like for you to read it but i don't want to beat people over the head right. with, with the thing like we were just basically having something to say but it, it was the same thing on each platform right yeah. it was like doing yeah. the thing in triplicate where you right. sign the fo- yeah. you fill out the form and then like you you post on facebook repost it on on instagram and then re-repost it on twitter yeah. and it was like oh that's not what these platforms are for like twitter has a, a specific purpose it's uh, it's prose it's text uh Facebook for me is best for sharing articles. So that's yeah. how we use those two platforms. Instagram, we share beautiful photos with a, a short little essay or, or something, a minimal maxim. And, and so we use the platforms differently now in a very intentional way. And I, I will tell you this, it has probably hurt us if I were focused on shares or revenue or whatever. Ryan and I have been fortunate in that we've never had anything that's gone viral, right. ever. That's interesting. It's hard to believe. I, I know, right? The documentary. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's hard to, to really look at the numbers at that. And and again, that's viral in a different way. That's just that's that's algorithmic right. in a sense. But you're not you're not chasing the viral high. No, yeah, no. Yeah. And yeah. and anytime I have found myself doing that, you know, if you talk to Jess, I, I've never once said, "Hey, we need to get," because she works with other other folks as well. Um, Intentional social is her website if anyone's interested. But she works with other folks, and it's funny like they'll come to her and say, "I need you to get our account to." Uh, See, so you work for the minimalists, and they have you know, a million followers. Uh, I need you to do that in six months, and she's like, ah. "Okay, <laughs> like, like uh, I'm not the person for you." He's like, "Well, I yeah. you can buy followers, but that's not the thing that I do. Like, yeah. that's not what we do. It, we we go out of our way to add value, and then hopefully, if people get value from it, they follow. If they don't, we always we act." encourage people to unfollow us too yeah. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm using it in a, a way that is congruent yeah. with the way that we want want to broadcast but if it is that big of a problem I just worry that we're we're, yeah. we're adding to the problem yeah I totally agree Josh it's because I think about like we started with Instagram stories 
Yeah. And then like, you know, we started doing Instagram. Well, then Facebook came out with stories. So and now we're going to do Facebook are, stories. Stories are what? Uh, it's like uh, <laughs> snippets into your life. They're up for 24 it's hours. It's Snapchat, basically. Is it videos? Or, it's, so, so it's, yeah, uh, it's or pictures, yeah. yeah. Okay. Basically so, so Snapchat. You're, you're familiar with Snapchat as a platform. You've never used it, but you're familiar with what I, it is? I know about Snapchat streaks, okay. yeah. 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 But more so, from the research literature. Okay, okay. so, so with this stuff. Instagram has the, their ephemeral stories, yeah. 15-second yeah, right. bits of, of ephemera that go away after one day. Yeah. But, it, but it is like this fear of missing out when these new... Well, when these social media platforms that we're used to using and they come out with a new feature, it is this fear of missing out. Oh man, we got to get on that if we want to. Right. So like, what if that's keep the next big thing? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. First so yeah, I don't know, Milburn. It's it's worth having a conversation about to see what. Well, the irony would can be can't if, if the minimalist came out and we're very publicly like we don't. We're not using social media because we don't think you should be on it this much right. yourselves. It would be this weird trade-off that you would lose engagement, but it would also yeah. probably boost your, right? Because there's something yeah. so countercultural about it. Yeah. But I mean, at, at the very least, so think about how intentional you guys are, right? I mean, you're talking about how much thought goes into exactly how you use these, why you use these. Notice like your guys' usage of social media has nothing in common with people on the phone at the stoplight, right? I mean, mm. you, like you have professionals yeah. that do certain things and this, so I have a chapter in the book about if you're using social media, use it like professionals. Because yeah. when you look at how professionals use it, it has nothing to do with looking at your phone right. at every moment. It's right. schedules and systems and it's data driven yeah. and, and it, it's not, so like Instagram is probably not something that eats up a lot of your time. No. no, I don't. Yeah. Well, you know what though? We could be eating up someone else's time That's, Well, yeah. For so example, with Instagram stories, like yeah. that is something that is ephemeral. People pull out at the stop like they're going through the stories yeah. or Facebook stories or whatever it is. So we maybe we're not, you know, it's not eating up our time yeah. personally, but what we're doing is, is we are adding yeah. to the noise and eating up other people's time. We're asking for people's most precious resource, which is their attention. Yeah. And so hopefully the, if I, if I'm being charitable about what Ryan is saying there, maybe what we're doing is a, better job of eating up their time than if they were yeah. to look at the the Kardashian post or yeah, whatever. Like we are giving them something meaningful that they can digest, that they can take an ingredient from and they can apply to their own lives that hopefully en enables them to live a more meaningful life. Yeah, um, I agree. I, but I'll tell you too, though, like when we're on tour, it's fun to do like goofy, silly stuff and have that engagement with our audience too to show that yeah. like, hey, we don't take ourselves that seriously, you Wait, know? Yeah. And that's the other place <clears throat> where I do get value from using, especially Twitter, is following Twitter comics mm. or just comics in general. So so like Chris D'Elia or Anthony Jeselnik are, are two that really stand out to me who use Twitter really well. They don't, they use it to broadcast, but I get value. Like I will, I will laugh out loud at yeah. stuff they do. Yeah. And I actually will seek it out. It's funny, like if I really want want to get on Twitter, I don't even go to twitter.com. The first place I go is twitter.com slash slash Anthony Jesselnik. And so like, <laughs> I don't even need to follow him. Right. I'm sure I probably do, but I don't need to because it's, it's a destination for me. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about earlier. We were talking about unfollowing everyone. The, then you go back to what are the real destinations for you? Mm. Um, but even that can be, become such a problem. YouTube for me, it's like I just have to, I have to get it out of my life because yeah. it is, it is my my crack. Or get the, the recommendations. <laughs> I mean, this this is a thing. Get these plugins. So right. A lot of these yeah. minimalists do it who need YouTube because whatever, right? Uh -huh. They need the how-to instructions for how to change their oil or whatever. You know, it's good for yeah, these things. Yeah, no, it's very useful. But they get these plugins that wipes away the algorithmic recommendations. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna try that one out for sure. Yeah. So let me know what you use because I yeah. I'd be we we had a time. recommendation I think from uh, James Clear. So let's go look that up. Podcast Sean, what recommendation? Uh, the YouTube plugin from James Clear. I'm I'm gonna start using that. Uh, I know we only have about 20 minutes left with Cal, so let's uh, let's dive into some of these surprise questions here. Um, what has Podcast Sean queued up for us? Let's hear from Corinne from Patreon. Most of my photos from the end of high school through all of my college years are sitting in film cartridges because throughout the years as a minimalist, I've really only kept the printed photos that mean the most to me. So today, there are an abundance of companies that will digitize your old films and memories. And I've recently been wondering whether to do it so that I can finally get rid of the actual film cartridges. I'm torn over whether or not it'll be a worthy investment. To digitize all of my old film would probably cost me well over $1,000. A part of me says it would be wonderful to have a copy of all the pictures from my student days and my travels. Another part of me wonders if they're just going to end up lonely in a hard drive and essentially become digital clutter. 
The old camera film doesn't add value sitting in a drawer as opposed to the joy of reliving the memories through the digital versions, but it is a really hefty investment to go full on digital. So I'd love to know your thoughts and what advice do you have for those of us who experienced life before the digital age? So this one's relatively easy for me. There's something on our website called a scanning party, basically. So you put party at the end of anything, it becomes instantly fun. And I'll show up with a six pack. (laughs) (laughs) And he's talking about his abs. Right. and uh, uh, so, so basically, you invite some friends over, and so you you go through those photos together. You scan the ones that are relevant that you think you want to hold on to, and what you'll realize, like I have all these pictures of thumbs or people I don't don't even know who they are, and, and all of these just random pictures you don't want. So you have two options: one, yeah, you can send it off to a place like One Dollar Scan. It sounds like it's going to cost you a thousand dollars. What's the opportunity cost there? I don't know. Is there a better way for you to spend that thousand dollars? Maybe, probably, unless they they're that important to you. Or you can buy, you know, a hundred dollar scanner or fifty dollar, however much that scanner is that we use. Uh, if you can put a link to that in the show notes, Sean. Um, uh, Ryan and I share this little photo scanner, and they're they're quick now. It's not the old printer scanner where like you fold up the thing and you put the photo down and fold it back down and hit seven buttons. You just feed them through there. It's like a document scanner, yeah. but for photos. It's and so awesome. yeah, it's it's really easy. But you can do that with friends and actually have an experience out of it instead of just having them in cartridges somewhere or in a box somewhere. You just have friends over who will help you curate those photos together and turn it into an experience i personally i I like digital photos because i don't that means i don't have a bunch of photo albums and i do like going through and looking at mariah and i's past travels like seriously like well again though that's one way i'll pacify myself is i'll pull up my digital photos and i'll just start flipping through i'm like oh yeah and like you know because pictures do you know spark some memory um what, what do you do with your photos kyle I'm an analog guy, right? So, okay. so my thought is once a year, you go through your digital photos and you build an album. Mm. And then you have it. Like, there's the album for the year, right? Yeah. It's going to last your whole like life. That, it's yeah. a very durable storage medium. It's a very good way to carry uh, And then you have it, right? And there, there's your best, those are your best photos. Yeah. And, and the way that, uh, the, the reason I like the scanning of photos it, for me is I have a backup. So if anything happens to those albums, so if, you, yeah. if, you digit, if you're taking the digital and then making them, making them analog, you still have you know, some sort of backup. Although ultimately, like, I guess the, the ultimate stoic approach is if they all get lost tomorrow, then we can move on yeah our next question is from jasmine in germany as a digital creative or content creator how do you deal with unpublished files as blogger i always struggle if some of the texts or photos on my laptop could bring value to someone even though i think they're not good enough for that since people told me that they get value from stuff which i posted although I thought it would be useless. It drives me crazy to decide if something is worth it to be kept or if it's just digital junk. So, Kyle, you you run across this. You write a lot. And I'm assuming the vast majority of everything you've ever written has not been published. Yeah, it's probably true. That's (laughs) probably true. I mean, if you talk to a lot of writers, I don't think the value in an incomplete draft is not... I can go back and take this draft and work on it. I, I think the value is I, I thought through this idea to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've yeah. worked it through. And then so if that idea is a good one, then at some point maybe you want to return to it. But almost always you're probably better off starting from scratch at that point. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I see drafts as sort of practice runs. Uh, and the notion that it's going to save time to go back to an incomplete draft, man, i go crazy if I kept all of those things, right? So you try some things. You, uh, I worked on this, it didn't really work week later five months later you kind of come back to that idea you've been stewing on it if it keeps coming back to you then you think it's a good idea yeah and writers don't like to go back to old drafts anyways right, right. you always feel like me today i'm a better writer than i was whatever three weeks ago i don't want to edit this crappy thing i yeah. want to i want to take another swing at it that is such a good point i, th- I think that with with respect to any any creative endeavor uh, a lot of the you know it's the whatever you want to call it the ten thousand hours it's it's going through the process what we've taken away with the the instant public I, I, although I'm the hugest fan of blogging and everything else but we've we've we treat everything as if it's publishable now and that's what we've tried to do with social media we've we've realized like no everything isn't publishable let's let's use social media just as a platform like you would a blog or like you would a documentary like this let's use this platform going forward but that means most of what we create we don't 
publish. Yeah. And I, another good example of this is our documentary. I think Matt ended up with somewhere close to 2,000 hours worth of footage for a 79-minute film. And uh, I know every book that we've written has been over 500 pages at its z- bloated zenith to edit it down to something that is more palatable. What do you think Matt did with all that? The other uh, nine, or yeah, one thousand nine hundred ninety-nine <laughs> hours of footage he didn't use. They're mostly sunrises. I bet they're in sunset Bunch time lapses. Time lapses on yeah. his TV. You but, guys looking pensive, <laughs> right? <laughs> the shadows looking, yeah, you know, profound. <laughs> no, you made a really good point, Kyle. Because when I think about like some essays in the past that I started writing and then went back to it six months later, a year later, the idea was still there. But I'm like, yeah, I'm scrapping this and I'm, I am going to start from scratch. Yeah. So maybe the advice uh, for Jasmine here is put a timeline on how how long you are willing to hold on to this creation. And then once, you know, once that six months is up, once that year is up, give yourself permission to let go. To, but to hang on to something to just say, oh, maybe one day it'll be a good idea. Okay. Yeah, maybe. But the work that you put into it is probably going to look much different years from now than what it'll look like when you first started it. I know I've already mentioned David Foster Wallace once in this podcast, so I'm going to mention him a second time and then I'll stop. Um, his second book, which is called Westward, it's a short story collection, but the end of it is like a hundred page novella. Uh, it's like the last story in there. And um, he had it, he, he was a, uh, he was an analog guy as well. And so he had it like, printed out in his back seat and it got stolen out of his car and it was his only copy. So he had to go back and rewrite the thing mm. and he had to do it. He did it in like three weeks somehow. Mm. Um, and he said that experience made, made the book a whole lot better. Wow. Um, I don't know that that would always be the case, sure. but in a weird way, I think what you're saying is true. Like if I had to go back and rewrite um, everything, that everything remains. that remains, yeah. I don't know if it'd be a, it'd definitely be a technically better book but the essence of it was also like it was so so long ago like they captured the 32 year old mindset which is totally different from my 37 year old mindset so it was a little bit different um but ultimately i think we need to get comfortable with creating without publishing and and uh i think publishing helps keep us accountable so having some sort of publishing schedule will will help you but not feeling the need that to not everything that leaves your quill is profound. Yeah. Right. Oh, what's the other line too that you, you say? I don't know if it's your line or you stole it from David Foster Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you treat everything as precious, then nothing is precious. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah that's, um, I think it's a minimal maximum of hours. Oh, yeah. If, yeah if, if everything is precious, then nothing is precious. Yeah. Right. And, and that is, that is the problem. And, and how we're creating now, we, we act as if, as if everything that we do is so profound. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, I don't know how if, if you experience this, especially when you first started writing. Yeah, it, you didn't. Re- For me, like I wrote a lot of fiction throughout my twenties, and unbeknownst to me, a lot of it was shitty fiction. But to me, it was everything was precious. But that was also why it was shitty because right. all of it was precious <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and having to barrier—that's one of the the unexpected consequences, positive consequences of some of the barriers that are out there. Like it's it was hard to publish book i mean it's hard to publish in a mm-hmm. magazine or fiction but hey you know that meant that you got to take a lot of swings and hone and you're at the social media age makes it feel like everyone cares about everything i have to say mm-hmm. also i think there's mm-hmm. a there's a sort of influence from the internet marketing world that i feel creeping into and maybe it's creeping into this question a little bit uh-huh. where instead of thinking about writing as an art right like you're trying to craft something and it's it's an artistic skill that you that you've developed it's it's thinking about words as value bringing assets mm-hmm. like well you need you need to give value to the audience by having assets that you can release at a regular pace and so like your words are an asset that's wow. going to bring value to the audience which will be worth this much in terms of links or there's this whole sort of terminology out there now where it's just about you're kind of vomiting out these assets that yeah. are that are going to bring content, content. you got to be yeah. content creators yeah. and and for people who've been writing for a long time i mean that's a, it's a little distasteful this way of thinking about it it absolutely is and i think we were talking with andrew schultz about this i think the biggest problem right now is content creation because uh, a lot of people are saying things we don't have anything meaningful to say but they feel compelled to generate content content generation i mean we could just sit here and like fart into the microphone for an hour that's content (laughs) (laughs) this this is the advice i used to give uh, aspiring nonfiction writers like what i observed in my own life is that what made you better was writing for editing 
right? So, yeah, so when you're writing yep. for like this could be for a magazine, this could be rejected if it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to be accepted, it's going to go through rigorous editing or book writing. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, there's a manuscript acceptance stage. Like you don't get this next check until they accept that manuscript mm-hmm. and they might not like it, right? Writing for editing made you a lot better. Whereas I found that just blogging, for example, even blogging, which I really like, it didn't give you the same sort of deliberate practice because right. you weren't writing for someone who, because you're not stretching yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. There's not someone who's going to pay you money for this. You're not and, pushing yourself to do the absolute best. Yeah. It's so, like, oh, this is good enough. And yeah, I'll move yeah, on. Yeah. You the put, next thing. put some money on the line, right? Like, yeah. okay, they're going to pay you for this article, but they're not going to pay you if it's not good. So then you stretch yourself and you, and you get better at it. I mean, that's how writers used to get better. And I think that's still how we can get better. At it. That's how we use our blog. In fact, we didn't even know they were called blog posts for like the first year. Um, <laughs> we had a website and we wrote us. Yeah, and so we still call them essays now, but uh, Podcast Sean is is the best uh, editor I know. Um, And so I I did a 400-word essay, um, and there was 22 changes that he recommended to the thing in 400 words. But it makes me a better writer because I am. I, I know that it's going to go through this process, and and I actually am anticipating now yeah. what he's going to say. And even then, I still come back with twenty two edits in, in a four hundred word piece. I remember the first time uh, Sean edited anything for us, like way back when. Josh sent me the file, and he was like, "Why can't you edit like Sean?" <laughs> <laughs> well, also the first time he did anything for me, it really hurt my feelings, right? Oh. Because. It uh, because I respect him as, as as an editor, but also like we want things to be perfect, yeah. Yeah. but they're not going to be, and you're gonna have to get your feelings hurt a little bit. You can't get better. Yeah, yeah that's the, the only. And, and now I I'm actually I'm I'm seeking it out. I'm like, hey man, can you please look this over? Because I know you could really help the ending out I on love this. That. So you really can't get any better if you're not willing to get your feelings hurt. Ah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Tweet that podcast. Sean, right, we got, uh, I'm going to do, do one more question here from Twitter. We're at The Minimalists on Twitter, by the way. Um, what does a minimalist approach to digital productivity look like? <laughs> To-do lists, calendars, and project management apps. What's the best way to navigate this world effectively? God, that question stresses me out, man. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be optimal. Oh, man. Hey, uh, Cal, how do you GTD? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a GTD plus with my Bojo Pro. <laughs> I'm the focus. Oh, my how goodness. Do, how do you look at productivity, man? Because it's, yeah. it, to me, that has also become, it's a word that meant something and still means something to some of us. But I found that I am less productive now, but the things that I do produce, I think, create more value. Yeah. Because tweeting all day is producing it's productive but is it is it effective yeah i mean i used to be a big productivity nerd i mean basically there is this this life hacker movement in the early 2000s Mm -hmm. where there is this dream that if you had the right systems Right. Four hour work week. Right. Well, and then this is GTD. This yeah. is like Merlin Mann, 43 folders, right? And there's mm-hmm. this there's this idea, OmniFocus was really big back then. And the idea was if you have the right systems, that the whole thing can run on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So if you track things the right way, have the the right rules, the right widget cranking assembly line, then you just you turn the whole apparatus on and it was going to produce work. And this yeah. this whole edifice sort of fell apart because uh, it turns out what is productivity? It's producing things that are really good. It's producing things that are so good they can't be ignored mm. and trying your best to keep the rest of the junk from impeding on that too much. Mm. Like that's basically productivity and that's where it, it basically evolved to. Um, and so that's what really matters. So like to, to me, productivity systems, uh, there's no there's no magic box out there that's going to, if I just follow these rules, I'm going to produce more. Now, what it can be useful for is getting stuff out of your head. It can be useful for organizing things. It can be useful for getting your arms around your week and your day. And and I care a lot about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's no magic system, right? Right. So, I mean, what do I use? So, I mean, pulling from the GTD world, I think full capture makes sense. What right. is full capture? So if there's any, if it's an obligation that you've made, it should be written down somewhere. Don't keep it in your head. If you keep it in your head, it, it takes away mental RAM. The right? other thing too is I'll put it in the steel trap in my head, but then like I can't open the trap. He doesn't sometimes. have the key. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, so that should be written down somewhere that, that you review it a lot. Okay, fine, right? Um, and then beyond that, I'm a big believer in weekly daily planning. Okay. So like what I like to do is get my arm around the week, right? Yeah. And it takes a couple hours, 
but you really sit and you look at the week and you look at your calendar and you just get yeah. a sense of how do I want to move the chess pieces Especially around. Especially when you're doing this with your partner too. Like it helps kind of... Yeah. yeah like how are we going to move page. the chess pieces around? Yep. I mean, uh, what I found is it's very ineffective if, if the way you run your day is like, let me just get to the day itself and then I'll open up my email inbox or maybe a to-do list and just rock and roll. And mm. everyone else is then dictating your day. Yeah, everyone's dictating your day. And also, even if you're not in your email inbox, but just doing this like David Allen, like let me just load up my task list and see what context I'm in and then start you know, going through task. I mean, it's, it's, it, you get a fraction of the productivity of where you actually look at the whole week yeah. and what's coming up. And like, well, Monday is going to be all about writing and Tuesday mm-hmm. is when I'm going to catch up on all these other types of things. And so that makes a big difference. Um, and then I'm a time blocker. So I actually like to think about my schedule for the day, giving time jobs. So again, I don't like to drive off a list. I like to draw, drive off of a plan for the day. Like yeah. during this hour, I'm going to be doing this. During these two hours, I'm going to be doing this. And so, yeah, I'm a bit of a planner. Mm. But I mean, all of this is just subordinated to making sure that you have enough time to produce the valuable stuff and yeah. that you're organized enough about all the other junk that it doesn't eat up all the rest. So the, uh, what I see here is like you've got certain a certain way you like to go about uh, uh, scheduling your time. And you don't rely on this magic bullet system to say oh well I, the only you know the bullet journal is going to help me schedule my time better uh or, or i'm sorry the the bullet journal isn't going to uh schedule my time for me yeah. like you might use something to help uh with your system that's why there isn't this magic system because i mean i can name bullet journal uh evernote these are two systems that i know people you know different people use they use them very very well but for me like it really isn't a great yeah. system for me i think we get fooled where we trick ourselves and say, oh, if we get something like Evernote, if we get something like the bullet journal, all of a sudden, like, we're going to be these, you know, amazing productivity yeah. geniuses. You don't, you don't need a system to tell, I mean, you know what you need to be doing. Mm-hmm. We're very good at making plans. We don't need a system to, to, to tell us what to do. I mean, the, the tool I use for my weekly planning is a text file. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because I, I don't need I don't need a, a structured tool to tell me okay you need to have X percent this and you have this and that and all these other constraints on how to run the week. Mm-hmm. If you sit down and actually think about it, you're smart. You understand the unique constraints of that week. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe you're on the road that week. It looks completely different than a week that you're at home, and you, you think about it completely differently. Just have a piece of paper or text file. Like, yeah most flexible tech there is. Yeah. You know, I, I can work out however I want to format it. I can work out. Uh, for me, it's often narrative. Mm. Like, yeah, okay, here's what we're doing. I'm on the road. So what I really want to do this week is like every morning, whatever, try to get this done. And then I have this big thing, you know, this free time on Tuesday, whatever afternoon. Mm-hmm. And the, so it's, it's, uh, I, I used to call it freestyle productivity. Yeah. The key is, is the intention in the planning, looking at your time, moving the chess pieces around, having a plan for what you want to do. Tools are only going to help you so much. Right. I mean, it's useful to write down the plan. Sure. You have a text file or a piece of paper. Yeah. But the tool's not doing the planning for you. Right. right? Exactly. And I think I think that's the thing we need to think about. Often we we buy. I'm going to spend seventeen dollars on this app or right. five hundred dollars on this system, and we think that all of a sudden we, we then we get mad because we're not organized the next week because we yeah. we didn't actually do the work to use use the tool. Yeah. So nothing wrong with with using the tool per se, but. Um, you have to you actually have to use the tool right, right? well Cal I want to thank you for joining us today I know we're running out of time yeah, man. I want to acknowledge you man I think you're, you're creating some meaningful stuff for the world not just your your current book Digital Minimalism but deep work and so good they can't ignore you your blog as well and folks can ch- check that out at calnewport.com but thank you so much for being here today yeah, man. you're yeah, awesome hey, my, my, my pleasure I mean I've, I've, I've been I've known you guys since what 2000 12 when you yeah. guys first got 11. started 11 it was, I think we were WDS together WDS oh, yeah. Right, yeah when I when I told the crowd not to follow their passion yeah, I was still <laughs> working in the corporate world when we met Kyle yeah. <laughs> you still yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so, so it's my honor to be here I mean you guys are doing this is um, every, I gotta tell you like what makes people most excited when I'm talking about various publicity everyone's like oh you're gonna see the minimalist ah, <laughs> it's crazy I, I'll actually like I was at a speech uh, not long ago and the person who was ushering me around was like oh wait and she she perked up she's like but the minimalists are gonna be in town I was like oh I know them and now suddenly she cared she's like oh you know the minimalists oh, man. <laughs> we're on the journey together man yeah, yeah you're doing anyways awesome. I love it you guys are doing great work thanks so much uh, yeah. thank you brother alright y'all love people use things we'll see you next time see ya every little thing you think that you need every little thing you think that you need every little thing that's just feeding your greed oh I bet that you'd be fine without it every little thing that you gotta have every little thing that you gotta have you gotta reach for Gotta grab, oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it. 
So take your eyes away Or take 